0: This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show.
1: ETH as an asset is going to go deflationary, it's going to go yield generating, and it's going to go ESG friendly, and all of that's going to happen in in one fall swoop. So I think that's what I mean by the digestibility of the narrative. Those three things together, deflationary, yield generating, and ESG friendly That is an incredibly potent combination uh, for large pools of capital, and you know, institutional type of capital.
0: Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. We got uh, the black t-shirt gang here. We got Mr. Travis Kling of Ikigai Capital, one of my favorite people in the entire industry. Trav, welcome to Empire.
1: When are we going to get some kind of black t-shirt sponsorship going on here?
0: (laughs) Yeah, we got it. It feels like the sentiment is starting to be pretty bearish around uh, like just NASDAQ, S&P, and the markets in general, um, does this mean, like, if you're bearish and, like, you think the rest of the year is not going to look great for things like the NASDAQ, the S&P, if Bitcoin's moved in lockstep in lockstep with the NASDAQ, does that translate to a bearish outlook for Bitcoin for the rest of the year? Uh,
1: yeah, it's a good question. So d- definitely pay a lot of attention to that correlation. Uh, Bitcoin's correlation to... Macro assets has ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, there's been periods of time where it's traded with stocks, with gold, uh, inverse VIX, the uh the 2's uh, 10's, um, various different, you know, more specific, in, you know, indexes within stocks, like, you know, maybe the S&P or Q's or. Uh, the momentum factor, for example, which is kind of like cues, but a little different. Um, right now the way, and you can measure a correlation, a bunch of different ways. Like it, you, you can, you pick a, a, a look back in a, in a, a time frame. the way I measure correlation, Bitcoin's correlation to NASDAQ is at 0.95 right now, which is to say, you know, you know, essentially statistically the same instrument almost entirely. Um, which is what you, what you just showed on that chart. Um, That, you know, in some ways, that's an expression of it's all one trade. In some ways, that's an expression of which is a term I've been using for how long I've been saying that now, 18 months, probably. I've been saying it's all one trade. Um, I don't know if I invented it. Maybe I did. Uh, But (laughs) yeah, it's all it's all one trade in the the sense that 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 central bank, you know, monetary and fiscal policy actions uh, have such a uh they th- their importance to asset price movements dwarf e- that dwarfs everything else to the point that like you know it's like those shirts if, from the 90s where it's like baseball is life the rest is just details right it's like fed policy is life the rest is just details and uh you know people can hate that or they can love that but th- that is just the, the sort of state of things right now so in some ways this correlation is like this expression of of it's all it's all one trade
2: um is it though Like, I guess like when when we talk about like, is it just one trade, like in the near term, it may be just one trade, like everything's so correlated. There's these shocks where the market kind of like in October, I think we all were coming in towards the end of the year saying, okay, there's going to be inflation. We've kind of known it, but then like once once it's real, right, it's like, okay, people like adjust and it's like a temporary shock, whether that's six months to a year. But like, I want to go to something um, which is like, is this a secular trade? And is it a secular trade over like a two, three, five, 10 year continuum, which is most kind of big allocators of capital. I think in crypto now, the composition is people that are like more long-term driven. These are like 10 year horizon funds, like venture funds that are deploying billions of dollars. Like, do you think it's just one trade or you look at something like the merge and you say like, holy shit, this is the next arc of the internet. Like how could you not deploy and take advantage of this volatility and uncertainty? I'm curious how you kind of position kind of your portfolio because timing, I don't think anyone kind of really, truly understands macro. It's like really funky. Um, but like it's, if you try to time these markets, it can become quite difficult. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, how do you kind of think about that?
1: Yeah, I would say crypto people definitely don't understand macro. You know, there, there's obviously a whole class. Uh, there, yeah, there's obviously a whole class of investors that at least, you know, try as hard as crypto people to understand crypto. They, macro investors try that hard to understand macro. And some of them are, are, are better at it than others, like like crypto investors. Um the I I completely agree with you that the 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 medium long term uh investment thesis for this technology and this asset class has never been brighter. And there's never been more institutional capital that is uh committed to it, that is uh watching it, there's never been more eyeballs. On this technology and this asset class, there's never been more dollars that are, uh, you know, earmarked. There's never been more dollars that are uh, a term that a friend of mine likes to use, uh, mentally committed but not physically deployed. Um, so, and and all of that bodes incredibly well. Um, so, so, so the question was, I think the question was like, why is Bitcoin ticking with queues? Right? That was the question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so it's it's uh, it, I think it's this combination of sort of partially an expression of all one trade and, and then and partially this institutionalization of uh, crypto trading where, you know, it's, it's e- I don't re- I don't really know exactly how Renaissance runs their business. But uh, I have no doubt that Renaissance looks at Bitcoin and its relationship to Q's uh, in some incredibly sophisticated ways and expresses that as do a lot of different traditional quant focused hedge funds. Uh, and you can start to feel that pressure, especially in the lack of with, with a lack of kind of clear retail demand. And I think it's pretty apparent that retail fervor has cooled off a lot over the last few weeks in or last few months in, in crypto. And so that I think that allows some of this more quantity stat ARB relative value, you know, type of, of correlation money to come in. And look, it's going to hold until it doesn't. All of these things sort of hold for some period of time, and then they decouple. And sometimes they can decouple in, you know, in either direction, but in a, in a really violent way. Like I, I remember in October, I think October of 2020, the VIX was up 40% and Bitcoin was up like, I don't know, like a lot, like 30, 30% or something like that. And, you, and at the beginning of the month, if somebody told you the VIX is going to be up 40% this month you know, what's Bitcoin going to do? And you would like, Oh, well, it's definitely going to be down if the VIX is up 40%. Right. And you would have gotten super run over on that. So I, so I think, you know, it's like these things sort of hold until they don't. I, I, I agree with you Santiago that like, uh, you know, ETH specifically this merge setup, uh, you know, this is going to sound like hyperbole, uh, this ETH merge setup, I think, is the single largest, the single most significant, most telegraphed event-driven catalyst in crypto history and the history of this asset class and this technology. And that, that sounds like a crazy thing to say, but um, if it's not going to be it, – it either has to be something that happened in ETH or it happened in Bitcoin because there's, it's impossible for – any other catalyst and any other name to have been as significant as those two names. And then you think about the Mm -hmm. history of Bitcoin and there's nothing that has been this significant that was this telegraphed where it's this much of a step change. And, and in terms of, of, uh, of what the merge represents, and then you couple that with, uh, the willingness and the ability for very large pools of capital to buy a lot of ETH for this, uh, you know, into this, this setup and the digestibility of the narrative and the ETH BTC outperformance trade is so clean that it scares me.
2: So, um, well, t- there's a lot to unpack there. One, I just want to give a high level understanding of what the merge is. But before we get there, you talk about this idea of what, what is priced in. You know, how, how much of how much of the merge do you think is priced in historically? Like everyone knows these things happen. Okay. It's been delayed a little bit, but like even the Bitcoin happenings, which are programmed, like, you know, exactly which block it's going to happen. And then of course, Bitcoin outperforms after every kind of like, uh, uh happening. How much of the merge is, do you think is one properly understood to priced into the market? And then maybe if you would just want to address like what the merge, why is it so like meaningful?
1: Yeah, so let's see here. So so it's just a shift from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, ETH as an asset is going to go deflationary, it's going to go yield generating, and it's going to go ESG friendly, and all of that's going to happen in, in one fall swoop. So I think that's what I mean by the digestibility of the narrative. And then I think like those three things together, um, deflationary, yield generating, and ESG friendly uh that is an incredibly potent combination uh for large pools of capital in you know it's institutional type of capital and then another thing this I've been writing about this in my monthly update letters for a while now um the market seems to broadly be the market seems to want to own the innovation that's happening at the layer one smart contract level. And that seems to, the setup seems to be that the market is thinking that that's more attractive than uh, the moneyness of Bitcoin, right? This term money, it's like an Austrian economics term, right? Like the hardness of the of the characteristics of Bitcoin as a money. Uh, and And we've seen that setup play out in other asset classes if you look at big tech, right, if you look at the NASDAQ, if you look at the fervor of the uh, early stage venture capital uh, technology investing landscape, uh, it's very clear that the market really wants to own innovation. And uh, in a world that's increasingly starved for growth, um, that world is willing to reward growth when it can find it and growth comes from innovation. And it looks like innovation happens, you know, on layer one smart contract levels. And it's and and and, and you get this sort of like uh, two for one or three for one type of situation where like, you know, you can own ETH. And not only do you get this this great, uh, you know, deflationary yield generation, ESG friendly innovation. But you, you also like you don't just get DeFi. You also get NFTs. And you also get, uh, you know, gaming and you also get like whatever else comes along that haven't invented yet. And that's kind of like owning, you know, Facebook stock and getting Instagram and getting WhatsApp, or that's kind of like owning Google and you get search and you get YouTube or whatever. Right. And so there, I think there's a lot of pattern matching that's probably happening there. And the amount, the other thing that, that I, I think about a lot in in terms of this is that there's. There's never been so so like two years ago, you know, we were just coming off the COVID crash. Two years ago, the Fed was, you know, in the middle of doing three trillion of QE in six weeks. And, you know, ETH was trading dude, no. Oh my it was god. Eight hundred? It's trading was trading
2: two two hundred. Yeah, no, it went all the way to one eighty. That was like the 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 March Ugh. Black Thursday. Or what what is it? It went like all the way to hundred
1: ish. Oh my god. Two Two years ago, ETH was trading 200 bucks. That's so good. Um,
2: <laughs> which, by the way, which, by the way, like, let's do a print. This is like at that time. I don't know if you remember. Everyone was like freaking out. Like, do you think that like the same level of like fear is in the market today?
1: Let's see here. The market cap of ETH two years ago was 17 billion dollars. Seven, 17 billion dollars. So two years ago, you know, as the Fed was doing $3 trillion QE in two weeks, and then, you know, a month later, Paul Tudor Jones writes his letter about bought a bunch of Bitcoin and it's the fastest horse and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, we everything goes off gong show. $17 billion, large pools of institutional capital cannot buy a, a $17 billion market cap uh, magic internet money. They cannot buy that. Um and so they could watch it but you had to be some what i call like 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 the 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 fast smart institutional money like the real you know you get, you're pretty out there if you're if if you're buying eth in the summer of 2020 and you're institutional capital like you're pretty far out there and and very very little capital that is a completely different setup than the situation that we're going into with this with eth 2.0 okay eth is now a you know 380 billion dollar asset it's uh, super large. It's super liquid. These narratives have played out a much greater... The, nobody's even talking about the ESG differentiation between Bitcoin and, and, uh, and, and ETH. Uh, you know, the innovation, none, none of that was nearly as well understood. So, like, th- that's what I mean by, like, the... the you, you, cannot, you cannot overstate the importance of the part of this setup that is the willingness and the ability... For very large pools of capital to buy a lot of eth. Uh, and I think it makes, yeah yeah, just it makes this time this time different. So that was I want I, yeah, I wanted to finish that point.
0: Empire is brought to you by Paraswap, which just reached a whole new level in the DeFi game. Paraswap started as a Dex aggregator, which for those who don't know, it's like a Google Flights or an Expedia for swapping crypto. You would obviously never just go directly to an airline's website. Uh, Same thing with crypto. You would never go directly to an exchange uh, to trade or to swap. You'd go to Paraswap. Why? Because they aggregate liquidity from more than 60 different sources uh, to get you the best prices and the most efficient gas transactions. Now, Paraswap, obviously still the best aggregator out there, but now there's more. They now have staking, they have yield farming. Uh, There's this one feature that I love. Uh, It shows you exactly how much money Paraswap saved you on your last trade. They're now on five different blockchains. They've got Ethereum, Binance, Polygon. They recently added Avalanche and Phantom. So it's really simple. If you're an Empire listener, if you are new to DeFi, or you're a power user of DeFi, really anybody, if you're dabbling in DeFi markets, you have got to try Paraswap. Their new staking and yield farming products are a game changer. They've taken DeFi to the next level with really one of the first mature DeFi products that I've ever seen. So head on over to paraswap.io. That is paraswap.io and start swapping, trading, staking, and so much more today.
2: Yeah, it, it makes it like a, the inv- the investability of ETH is, is higher now. I would agree with that. I, I started to notice that like maybe a year in, when EAP1559 was coming around, a lot of big, big macro funds started reaching out and saying, hey, talk to me about not Bitcoin. Actually, Bitcoin wasn't even mentioned in the conversation. Hour-long calls. Tigers of the world were like, hey, talk to me about ETH. And these are guys that are smart in tech, are willing to go out there. You know, Tiger was early investor, like in really aggressively moving in places like India to invest behind a lot of startups there, like Flipkart and stuff like that. And so they were looking at ETH, but maybe to your point. I guess the question to you is, from where, from your vantage point, it has felt that yeah, sure, a year, a year and a half ago, it was seventeen billion. It's, it's, you know, after you cross like two thousand, it's, it's, it's a much different animal. Which you could argue, ETH has been investable for over a year now because it crossed sort of this fifty billion milestone. I don't know what your heuristic is around like for these type of funds, but seems to me like around fifty billion, it starts to be, you know, pretty investable for a lot of folks. We've been in that set up for, you know, call it nine, 12 months. Um, and we've seen ETH kind of go all the way up to 4,000 now at 3000. Um, and so the question for you is like from, from your conversations with these, with these large pools of capital, how much of that do you think is kind of like sitting idly waiting for this to actually go through and then invest? Like how do they deploy? Like do you deploy now? Cause you have good certainty that it's happening. Sure. Delayed, but you make the argument to deploy now or do these guys are like buying into the market slowly and just cost averaging in, or are they going to wait after the merge?
1: Uh, So it's probably a combination of all of those. I I mean, it looks to me like ETH is being heavily accumulated right now. Um, It makes it interesting that because of the specifics of this setup, expressing the view through derivatives doesn't get you the same, you know, you can't get a yield on a derivative basically which makes that setup in terms of the expression of the trade a little bit a little bit different um a derivative
2: in this case being like a like a like, per, like a perp, like a perp or um grayscale product yeah
1: yeah yeah that's right yeah
2: cuz it feels like some, sometimes i feel like the market wants to be bullish we are always at least crypto people always want to be bullish always want to find reasons to say no it's correlated now but like give it a give it a second like it's going to grow like everything that you're saying like it sort of makes sense i think i think this very much appeals to music to my ears and everyone in crypto but what is the scenario where like we see eth back at like a thousand post merge like is it because like scalability there's nothing there like is this you know cuz one, one of the things that merge doesn't solve is high gas that comes through layer 2s um which you know you could right. argue are very much developed and uh, but still like could there be a world here where we see ETH back below 1000 uh,
1: So the the way that ETH BTC underperforms in the coming months from here is uh, the Fed goes hard in the paint. Uh, and uh, the market, you know, sort of equities get spooked into, you know, like bringing the VIX in alignment with the move index would be like one way to think about that. Or maybe like equity is you know, doing some sort of capitulatory type of move to come more in line with like what the Fed funds futures rate is, uh, F- Fed funds futures are, are, are sort of pricing in. Uh, that's not my base case, but that's, that's the possibility. If, 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 if I'm incorrect in my read on the Fed and they are just going to drive this train straight off a, you know, recessionary and asset price crash cliff, Uh, It would be my base case that that would be bearish ETH BTC and that the strength of this narrative would not would not be able to sort of overcome that macro, you know, dark cloud, so to speak. Uh, Again, not my base case, but it could happen. And then if, if there's something technically that actually goes wrong with with the merge. Right. And there's I think there's certainly some amount of capital that's waiting to see how that goes. Uh, and is willing to buy higher afterwards as that risk is diminished um, in terms of, of of the technical execution mm-hmm. of this. And I guess we all know it's just it's it's not it's not everybody knows you know it's not one one step mm-hmm. and done right. It is a multi-step, multi-year process. But this first step is obviously mm-hmm. you know a very a very big important step. So I think there's there there's there's a technical. Sort of sort of uh, aspect to this as well, too. And, and I think the the thing that's so captivating to me about this trade is that going back to the first part of this conversation about the macro setup, uh, it looks to me like the merge is probably going to happen right around the time mm-hmm. that the Fed slows down its tightening. And the market starts to come to the realization that there's not going to be nine hikes this year, that they don't want to drive the train straight off a recessionary and asset price crash cliff, and that they were actually doing maximum jawboning, uh, trying to spook the market into having inflation rollover. You know, maybe you take GDP growth, you kind of go and kiss a zero GDP growth line and then curve it back up. That's what they're incentivized to do. That's what they've done before. That's what worked so well. In this, you know, the Fed's constituents, the Fed has become completely politicized and their constituents are boomers. And think about how good of a period of time uh, 2009 to 2020 was for boomers. This is a tremendous time to be an asset owner, to be a boomer. And, you know, it's like you own anything. It was it was an outstanding time. And and it was the slowest pace of economic growth in U.S. history, slowest U.S. expansion, you know. GDP expansion in U.S. history its just that slow and steady. Why would they not want to recreate mm-hmm. that? And I think that's probably what they're going to do. And when the market comes to that realization, there's nothing on planet Earth you want to own more than crypto. <laughs> there's, like, there's nothing on planet Earth that you want to own. And you're some traditional guy. And you've had a shit year in traditional. Sixty uh, forties gotten smoked. Equity's gotten smoked. You get, and 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 you're sitting there and you're trying to make up your whole year in the back four months of 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 the calendar year. The Fed just went on pause. What do you want to own more than ETH into this merge? Like, are you are you serious?
2: You're singing to the <laughs> choir, right? I mean, like, but but I will say this. Okay, so like you saw as as a tangent. Uh, take like uh, Pershing Square, like Ackman. Went, uh, you know, balls deep buying Nasdaq. No, sorry, Netflix, and then quickly chopped it because for the first time ever they've seen subscriber numbers go down, and the market was like freaking out about that, realizing that you know content is hard to create, right? You need hits. Like I don't disagree with you. I want to believe that, but there is a thinking probabilistically, there is one version where, and the question goes back to these allocators of capital. So okay, they're buying all this ETH. If they're feeling pain in other parts of their portfolio, and this correlation holds true, well, they're sure as hell going to chop crypto as well. Like I, even the setup of the, like all these things, I just, I, and tell me if you disagree here, but like, and and by the way, like Pershing Square like chopped their Netflix position really quickly. I mean, they, they sort of exited the trade. It could be a good trade maybe in two years time, but right now, like they're feeling pain, they're going to chop if if crypto is not a meaning meaningful part of their portfolio i would think that it's no more than five percent of their book don't you think that they're going to chop that as opposed to trying to double down and like try to make up the year they're like nah hell no the correlation's holding i'm out because the bait on this thing this puppy's going to be 2x nasdaq adios
1: yes yes Potentially. Maybe the only thing
2: that saves you, as a, and I'll stop talking, is like these these more traditional venture funds that have a ten year horizon and are not 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 marking to market and don't have redemptions and all this stuff.
1: So I think the setup is the cautiousness is in the coming months. The ca- the cautiousness, the potential downside risk is like May June July. There's like a, I think there's real sell in May go away type of risk um, in traditional and in turn in in crypto. Uh and then I would say then the setup after that then becomes our inflation indicators not rolling over so that the Fed has to keep going, you know, they're gonna go they're highly likely to go 50 bips in May. And then I think there's a decent chance they're gonna go 50 bips in you know, in June. That's that's much less priced in, but there's a decent chance. But like if if these numbers just start staying really hot, uh you know, do they just keep the foot on the accelerator, uh, you know, crank up the balance sheet, roll off, get up to ninety five billion a month is, you know, sooner rather than later. And the 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 jawboning is j- remains very hawkishness. And so that's what I mean by the markets can be laser focused on leading inflation and growth indicators because the market needs to see those rolling over so that they can start to expect the Fed to start to take their foot off the accelerator a little bit because the Fed is saying they're going to be data dependent. You need those 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 steps to fall in that place. And if they don't, then the market's going to say, well, then it looks like they're going to keep hammering this thing and it's going to be a sort of like rough landing sort of deal. And, you know, look, if, you, uh, if the Fed's really going to hike nine times in 2022 – you don't want to own any of this. You, you, you want to be sitting in cash and you want to and, and this plays into the setup as well, too, for the longer term people, the, you know, the, the people that are willing to think not quarters, but years and willing to DCA. And when something's, you know, Bitcoin or crypto broadly is 50 percent off the top, that's when the DCA kicks in and they just keep DCAing basically. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of capital like that. And the, the thing that makes this setup, you know, you got to remember about that setup is like if they are going to drive the, the the train off of the recession and the asset price crash cliff, what's on the other side of that? Well, it's more QE than they've ever done before. It's rate cuts and more QE than they've ever done before. And so it's and, and don't get me wrong, near there'd be real pain in the near term. And I, and I, it wouldn't be a COVID style crash, would be my base case. But it could you you could have a, you know, go look at like q – uh, in traditional asset classes would be like a decent corollary type of thing, um, and you know, crypto had its November 2018 moment, you know, right right in the midst of that. But um, that's the the thing that makes even that what I would say the bear scenario still bullish is the amount of cat the cat's out of the bag about what you want to own in a loosening monetary policy environment and the cat is out of the bag in terms of what comes after tightening and the more aggressively they tighten the faster and more aggressively they're going to have to loosen things back up and that may be after you know some really nasty price action Um, or they may try and do like i said more of this shallow type of of, uh, you know, kiss the zero GDP growth and pull it back up to manage inflation type of stuff, which that is my base case of of what they're going to do. But in any case, the sort of like long-term, medium-term outlook, the crossing the Rubicon in terms of the capital coming into this space that sees it as, you know, the next major leg of uh, growth and innovation on planet earth in general, like we've covered so much ground in such a short amount of time. And, and the, the, the thing that, that, that I always, that helps me frame this, you know, I write this monthly update letter and at the beginning, it's got these, you know, monthly highlights, these bullet points for the most, most sort of significant things that happened in that month. And then I, because on, on our content website, I've got a page that has just the monthly highlights all in a row, right? It's like last month, month before, month before that, all the way going back through 2020. And you can look at that page and you can see in, in one spot and it helps you frame the, uh, just how much room or, or how much ground the space is covered in general, but specifically the capital raises, the, the project raises, and the, the fund raises. And in, in, in the month of March, a $100 million project raise was the sixth largest project raise in the month of March and a $100 million venture fund raise was the sixth largest venture fund raise in the month of March. Mm-hmm. Like that that is in that that capital is raised. That runway is already there. There's there's a couple hundred projects that have multiple years of runway already and there's billions and billions of dry powder in venture capital that if not another dollar of venture capital is raised, yeah. you're sitting on years and years mm-hmm. of deployment that ends up uh, uh, funding the innovation that leads to the adoption that gets even more of this traditional capital into this yep. thing. Yeah, that's uh, a big, that's mm. a massive point. part I of I agree, setup. I think
2: like 2017, what people forget is what's different now um, is the capital formation side of things. A lot of 2017 was just rotating ETH gains into these projects. It wasn't really like permanent, more permanent long-term capital. In this case, you do. You have external capital that is that is is deployed, is looking to deploy. And I think the the two things that I've looked at recently is the the rounds themselves. Like traditional venture, um, you know, secondary markets have come down twenty percent in in locks of the Nasdaq. Like the the rounds are getting smaller or harder to finance. I think people are being more disciplined in traditional venture, but crypto. You've seen these rounds is the pace hasn't really slowed down, in many ways, which is very very encouraging. And you have more funds looking at it, and so. And the other thing that I like to remind myself is like you look at the MVCA data, top quartile venture fund, traditional venture fund was like 2x, 2.25x. And that would have put you in the top quartile like last couple years. That's embarrassing if you're in crypto. I'm sorry, but like, like, and so I, you look at that and you yeah. say, look, I'm not telling you to like deploy all of your capital in a crypto, but had you just deployed again, if you took like a Moskowitz approach and you would have d- deployed like... A, a a slice of your portfolio. Like I've known many venture funds that return their fund on one investment, like Flow or OpenSea or I mean it literally is what saved their ass because the traditional software, like they just are, I don't know, it's very competitive. And it's almost like you're left wondering. Like I, I think more of that this is I think aligned with what I'm trying to say is I think if they feel pain in traditional kind of value like, you know, we works of the world or whatever, then you're kind of forced to look elsewhere. Like what is the next where am I going to actually deliver and clear my hurdle? I mean, yeah, it's it's crypto. I agree with you. It's what Web, web, web yeah. three call it. You know, don't don't control F crypto in in any traditional crypto <laughs> pitch deck. You're still like you're a heretic. But Web Web three is is okay.
0: How great was that? Uh, this just so good. Brand? God, it's I love amazing it so pivot. much. Yeah, an ama- it, amazing. It's brand. really it's really yeah. good. <laughs> Tra- Travis, what is um. What is your, it, It's am- I, I love hearing this conversation between you two, by the way, because when I met Travis, he was 100% of the portfolio was in Bitcoin, all yeah. in on Bitcoin. So I want to flip that into a question, Travis, like what is your, like put your money where your mouth is, like what is your portfolio look like today?
1: It may, may be helpful to uh, just a minute on, on kind of history for EKI. So the large majority of, of what we've done over the last few years has been. Systematic models-driven exposure to Bitcoin with the purpose of outperforming just holding Bitcoin. So we build proprietary statistical models. It's not high frequency; it's like mid-range. So over like a multi-week time frame, you know, you try and buy when you know you think it's undervalued, and sell when you think it's overvalued. And you don't even have to. You certainly don't have to be perfect at it. If you can, if you can be okay at that. As the months turn into quarters, you can start compounding your outperformance versus just holding Bitcoin. And so when you look back over our the history of the fund, we've outperformed holding Bitcoin by a lot. And and the large majority of of our of our capital has been exposed to either Bitcoin or cash, you know, in this in this kind of systematic strategy. Um, so I think a couple of things happened over the course of of. Uh, you know, last year we bought a little bit of Solana and it turned into a lot of Solana because the price went up a lot. That was cool. To a lesser extent, we bought a little bit of FTT and it turned into a lot of FTT because the price went up a lot. And so this sort of like, you know, 85 percent of our AUM that had been deployed into this BTC systematic strategy, it got to the point where that you know we, we didn't have 85 percent of our portfolio deployed in that anymore because uh, of these these very small bets that, that sort of went up a lot. Um And then we just started, specifically after Axie Infinity happened last summer, we started doing a lot of work on Metaverse and Play to Earn. And I got very compelled by the long-term horizon for that. Uh, And uh, that it just looked like this concept of Play to Earn, but it looked like that was the top of the second inning that it was going to be a multi-trillion dollar total addressable market that it was uh going to be transformative globally and that it had the potential to make many many people's lives better in a single generation and specifically people that uh most need their lives to be made better and the combination of all all of those things uh you know got us super interested in that so we've been the, the, the portfolio has had pretty limited exposure to uh, – the hedge fund portfolio has had pretty limited exposure to the Metaverse asset class. But we've been doing a ton of work on it. Uh, there's honestly not all that much in terms of liquid tokens today that's that compelling. Uh, we do like DeFi Kingdoms. Shout out DeFi Kingdoms. We think there's, they've got a lot of cool stuff that's, that's going on there. Um, but we've been doing a lot of work in terms of understanding the landscape doing a lot of frameworking in terms of, you know, trying to understand what innovation looks like in this space. And, and, and when new things come down the pipe, you know, is it, we think these new things are going to be sufficient to, to, um, uh, attract the, the, the adoption, uh, that's required, you know, to sort of get these things, uh, scaled up in terms of, of user bases and that sort of deal. But, You know, I think what we have sort of come to the conclusion of is that, uh, you know, one, we're going to have we're going to be doing a lot more emerging crypto sector investing in general at Ikigai. And I think you'll hear more from us on that. Uh, And then specifically on this sort of like layer one smart contract and owning the innovation there relative to what's going on with BTC. I've never been a BTC maximalist. I think if you go back to Pop's podcast in 2018, yeah. I said that exact same thing then, and it's been true the entire time. We had a BTC centric strategy because we were trying to figure out a way to scale up the AUM of 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 Guy to get to the point where we we're gonna make sure we weren't gonna go out of business. Like we had a we needed to create a business. And we did that. And you know, we got a nice business. But then, you know, you get to that point and now it's like, okay, what's next? And you know, my assessment of the risk adjusted return opportunity. In crypto broadly, for you know systematic BTC relative to a bunch of other things out there, there's just other attractive stuff to do, and we're we're still going to be trading large cap systematically. We're we're kind of broadening the the kind of quant research horizon in, in real time, so it's going to be this kind of the the hedge fund is going to be this kind of mix of of uh kind of ten or twelve large cap systematic plus you know I'd say significant exposure to just emerging crypto sector type of bet, but boil all of that down uh the fund has about a one percent position in bitcoin right now
0: so you've gone from 100 percent allocated to bitcoin with system trading like trading it systematically to now you're one percent in bitcoin
1: yeah yeah that's right and we've got a decent we're sitting on a decent chunk of cash and we own a lot of ETH. yeah
0: what percentage of the liquid portfolios in ETH? uh a lot You and santiago both i mean like okay like
2: i'll jump in here but like uh listen from my perspective like 98 percent of everyone in crypto okay sure there's a lot of asymmetry in privates which you could argue is not very scalable not very i'm super active on the private side it's not scalable as an institution level like the most asymmetry happens in sub sub you know two million dollar raises like good luck trying to deploy more than 20 30 40 million dollars in that strategy still you do it because you outperform and some of these can can literally return a fund, like some like Step In, for instance, or Alluvium. Now, but for the most part, it's really yep. hard to outperform ETH in the long term. Like historically, it is just very hard. And you can argue that like now with the merge and you earning a nice yield on that, like, I mean, the, as simple as it sounds, like people like to like justify to their OPs doing all these complex esoteric strategies. The reality is. Sometimes they just pay you to hold the underlying because they don't want to custody deal with all that stuff. Look at the, the, the grayscale premium. That was just the market telling you, I want someone to just hold this for me. Yeah. Stake your ETH, earn 8%, 10%, 12%. I mean, holy shit. Then, then and there, you're you're outperforming inflation. Okay, fine. Use that capital then to rotate and invest in some of these private deals. And fine. Like Honestly, that strategy alone, if you do that, you're probably going to be in the top quartile of crypto funds. And yeah, most importantly, don't blow up yeah. because to your point, Travis, there is a probability okay. in crypto and we will see. Every time I, I was like, are we ever going to see ETH below 2000? There's like a 20% probability that that happens. You want to be there to to hit the bid. You don't want to be there and get liquidated.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 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 I I, I I agree with with all that. Um definitely staying in the game is paramount. The beta value creation of this asset class is going to be so you know i mean the asset class is going to 10 trillion like that's the most you know it's 2 trillion right now it's going to 10 and that you know that's that's like the most attractive risk reward on a 5x that i think i could possibly imagine and it's going high you know it's highly likely to go high it's not going to stop at 10 trillion but but you, you get my point and it's like you definitely want to make sure that you're just in the game for that, uh, and that yeah you don't you don't blow yourself up on leverage, um, and 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 that sort of deal. I, th- I think another thing that I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on is like how the competitor layer one smart contract platforms come into play. And this is a conversation I've I've been having with with you know other investors a lot about in this in this setup where ETH BTC looks like there's a clear path to you know I would say t- you know testing all-time highs if not breaking all-time highs. Uh, you know it's about a $400 billion dollar market cap right now, a uh, little little less than that. It looks like you know one of the one of the cleanest doubles this year from here that I could possibly imagine one of the safest, highest RR doubles from here I think I could I could possibly imagine. You're gonna need a little help from the Fed, but 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 to my point, uh, I think there's a decent chance you can get it. But it's like if ETH is sitting there chilling at like 750 billion dollar market cap, and you start looking at some of these other layer one smart contract platforms, like how is the market going to be looking at these these sorts of things, and 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 what is that that competition you know going to look like?
2: Yeah, I think if I understand the question correctly, is like the the ETH BTC trade is clean. And then you say, okay, should I also like rotate away from other L2s into ETH? Or how do you play that? Like, what does it mean once a merge goes in? Like, what does that mean for other L2s and that narrative, which has always been Ethereum doesn't scale, Ethereum doesn't deliver as quickly on their, on their roadmap, I'm going to invest in a more perhaps centralized team that is going to execute and...
1: Well, Sorry. So, just, just so just to clarify there, I think l2s would be one trade but then there's like Saluna, or, you <laughs> Saluna, know, Vax, Sal- yeah. Saluna Vax, right and <laughs> y- yeah yeah
0: I, I don't think I don't think the larger institutions so I, Travis I completely agree that I think that this is a massive catalyst for eth and I think what happens is the institutions come in and start buying eth for the first like in 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 bulk like in the way that they did it after Paul Tudor Jones after the having in 2020 and after Paul Tudor Jones kind of away the career risk for bitcoin that same thing happens with uh with the merge but i think what ends up happening is like they don't do it for tech technology reasons like i think santiago's like uh maybe a little more ahead of the curve when it comes to just like what this eth merge actually does and like layer twos i think just like any bull market in crypto for the for all of time they just they buy ETH and then they want to push further out on the risk spectrum. Yeah, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a tech trade. I think it's just looking to push further out on the risk spectrum. And I think the difference is like in the last L1 bull run, you had like Solana and now there's some other L1s that could be interesting. That like you know yeah. obviously like like Near is starting to get really in the narrative, and so I think that the the L1 space is just going to be a little like bigger and more established this time around.
1: I, I was I was going to ask you like. Do you have any view on the relative competitiveness of any of those alt layer one ecosystems versus another? And let's not let's let's put ETH versus in and the rest of them aside, and let's just look at this basket of uh, mm-hmm. Soul, Luna, AVAX, Near, mm-hmm. DOT, Atom. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, that, that that that's probably the basket, and like just how's that slugfest going to gonna sort of play out you know in a world where eth is like approaching a trillion dollar market cap
2: i think people always want to replicate trades and if you were if you missed eth sometimes the best investments are just copying a trade right if something like for me it was i saw what axie did i passed on the seed and i still think about that and lose sleep over it and then i invested in alluvium right after because i said okay the market's telling you there's something here do people appreciate like it's a very like fi- like very deep question that is seems to be a, a point of contention in the industry is is it a winner take all market like is eth going to suck the air out of the room and and obliviate the need for other chains like are you going to have and we're having this discussion like uh, i think it was with Ilya and other folks is like where do you like Ilya the founder of near it's says like is this a multi-chain world um do you believe that and, and we were talking with layer 0 guys And the layer zero guys will tell you, no, 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 no. It's going to be multiple chains and we're just going to route to the more efficient one. And I think like, that's like, to me, that feels like a narrative that a lot of venture investors really understand. Um, And so I think a lot of people are going to want to replicate the trade and say, okay, ETH is clearly, I think the the correlation between Ethereum and this other basket for the most part is going to be very strong. Um, You know, if ETH does a five X, you know, then probably some of these other ones, people might think that's gonna probably do more than that. It carries more risk, but you know people don't really right. kind of
0: like conceptualize that. Trev, have you looked at uh, the Electric Capital Developer Report? Have you seen this before?
1: Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I haven't looked at it recently, yeah. but I'm like this is the big
0: it. question, right? So like ETH is run like if you look at the developers building, like ETH is the runaway, right? And then kind of second up, you have Polkadot has the second most monthly active developers. The big, the, like this is really what we're talking about though. Like this range where everything's just kind of stacked together and yeah. nothing's been breakaway. Right. And like, this is where I think a lot of the money will be made is like, which one of these ecosystems, like they're all kind of floating around the same. You've got like Avalanche and Terra and like you got Flow and like Near and they're all kind of approaching it differently. Um, and like that, I think this basket is where it starts to get really interesting.
1: Yeah. And then, because like, you know, as, as an investor, do you just not get cute and just own the basket? Just, just yeah. own. And some of them, some of yeah. them are going to underperform. Some of them are going to outperform, but the blended return of the basket is going to be super yeah. attractive, basically. And then, you know, and then I think you end up arguing like, okay, how much ETH do I own versus versus this basket of alt layer ones? And
2: I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, why doesn't Bitwise or Grayscale just create a rebalancing index of the top like ten? And like in a similar way, like if you're not like a very deep, like if you're not Sequoia, it's kind of hard to outperform the NASDAQ. Like even Mark Andreessen's been asked, like if you had like $10 million today, where would you put him? As like, honestly, I would just buy the NASDAQ or in the S&P. Why? Because it auto rebalances to the top companies. So in a similar manner, like I feel like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the top 10 that is absolute crap, dog shit, um, which I think is going to go away over the next five years, 10 years, as people kind of, as, as, as there are certain L1s that different from other times in, in the history of this market, there's usability, there's applications, like there's games being built that people are using these things. And it's going to be harder to justify to people. Why would you own Cardano or Ripple when you have an ecosystem like near Terra Avalanche that are actually getting usability and traction? And so from that perspective, like you almost want to own like an index that constantly rebalances and is giving you exposure to whatever gets adoption. Um, cause yeah, I don't think anyone is smart right. enough to understand how do this ecosystem is going to look like five years from now, let alone 10. Right. And if you're not doing this kind of full time, which is even hard to keep up with, you kind of just want to own the index that rebalances.
1: <laughs> you can even be really keeping up with it and, and, uh, still have a hard time. I think, I think outperforming that in a lot of cases, one, one thing, I, one thing I wanted to mention, you know, after that after that uh, ETH versus BTC portfolio allocation comment, there, there is the medium, you know, I would say this would be kind of the second half of this decade type of trade, I think, is that, and I think about this a lot, like, uh, so, so I think the way that Bitcoin goes to like 500,000 and beyond per BTC as just it slowly starts to be adopted as pristine collateral. This this moniker pristine collateral is the it's the way that for the last year or longer I've framed like how does BTC you know go a lot higher from here. And it has the characteristics to be pristine collateral. Uh the US dollar is the world reserve currency, but US Treasuries are the uh You know, in a in a debt based global financial system like we have, it's collateral that matters. Treasuries are the collateral foundation of that global financial system. Treasuries as a financial instrument have a challenged outlook in the course of this decade and the next. Um, I think just most recently, the uh, sanctions that you saw happen with Ukraine, again, puts this like interesting next step on. You know what do FX reserves really mean for sovereigns? And I think that that you know over a longer period of time, that's another sort of feather in Bitcoin's cap. I think uh, as pristine collateral. Although I guess in theory, if you know, you know, if if you know if the central bank of Russia were holding their their twenty billion dollars or whatever worth of, of of Bitcoin on their treasure treasure and Chainalysis has that marked as Russia's Bitcoin, and then they can't move it in the same way that uh, they just sanction Russia's FX reserves. Like, I I don't know exactly how that happens. But anyways, Bitcoin is pristine collateral, and that that can be very slow adoption. That's just like slowly marching towards that over the course of, of, of this decade. And it's not like it has to get to the end of this decade, and it's like, oh, you know, Bitcoin's now replaced U.S. Treasuries. That's not what I mean at all. It's just this sort of like slow march towards being accepted as pristine collateral. The pipes and the infrastructure being built for it to act as pristine collateral, both on the uh, on the institutional side, but I think also on the the uh, individual side as well too. Like just holding some Bitcoin, borrowing dollars against that, paying some reasonable rate of interest to do that at a reasonable loan to value, and as long like that's just a better alternative than a credit card and um and then interesting to see what's happening with you know as a as a reserve asset um with with some of these stable coins, that's a totally different ball of wax but the 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 question or the the comment I was going to say, and maybe the question I was going to pose back was you run down a handful of years and bitcoin wrapped bitcoin works seamlessly in all these layer one smart contracts, and it's cheap. It's safe. Uh, it's, you, can, you can bridge really quickly and cheaply. It works really awesome. And you can use Bitcoin as uh, you know the engine to go do all of the innovative stuff that you want to do where the innovation has happened on these layer one smart contract platforms. And does the market start to realize that in that world, that in that seamless world, do you actually want to just hold the thing that has the most moneyness, and then does that end up going back to Bitcoin? And there's some chance that that happens. In my head, there's uh, uh, it's not near term, and and it would be my base case that Layer Ones would massively outperform over uh, you know pro- you know probably many years. Before the you know or multiple years before the market starts coming to this realization that like, you know, where do you actually want to hold Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. So I'd be curious if you had any, if you've ever thought about that. before. Yeah, you I, had mean, any. I,
2: uh, I think these are all really good points. Like the I really love your framing around pristine collateral, especially in given sort of the geopolitical situation. It, it's good and bad, candidly. Uh, you know, there is a version of this world where it becomes problematic. And I think the European kind of union has been a little bit slower. I mean, I think it's been very encouraging on the regulatory side of things. From what I hear uh, in the US and the UK, the EU has kind of struggled to get around it. Um, But pristine collateral, I mean, this is something that I tell my my friends from like, they're so skeptical in this industry. I'm like, hey, give me an asset that is perfectly, collateral that is perfectly transparent 24 seven, 365. In real time, you can inspect it. And you have full custody over it like 2008 wouldn't have happened and they're like yeah and you can build a whole suite of products around that um so I, I don't think that narrative is actually i hope that i i think it's it would be wise for bitcoin to kind of adopt that narrative uh more and more um as opposed to just like we're going to blow up like the world as we know it, and this is going to be the new utopia uh which you know is difficult
0: i mean but I, th- I think you're starting to see it with like what what doe is doing like what lfg is doing like that that's that. That is the pristine collateral narrative, right there. In in effect.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. But I, w- I want to get. I want to get your pulse on like Bitcoin, and you've been close to it, Travis. Uh, just given your exposure, like there is this camp within the Bitcoin community that says, "Wait a minute, no, we're going to build smart contracts here." Like the sovereign. There's, we can build, um, you know, applications on top of the Bitcoin network. You have Lightning. You like. Do you think about that? Do you think it's credible? It sounds like obviously you're more excited about. You know Ethereum and other smart contract, more generalized smart contract platforms, to take that role. But is there is there a play here where Bitcoin might catch up and then and then some because it has the network effects? It has it's still the king, you know.
1: I do not have a view on the viability or the timeline mm-hmm. of smart contracts on top of Bitcoin. I don't, um, and I don't have I don't I don't have a view on the developer talent that's working on that. I like, guess we all know there's a there's a tr- there's a massive lack of, you know, the folks that can actually build this stuff. And I'm always very clear to point out I am not one of those people. Uh and and hats off to them because if it wasn't for them, you know, none of us would be sitting here doing that and we need more of them. But but I, I don't I, I yeah I don't I don't have a view on it.
0: That that feels like the biggest contrarian trade in crypto right now is that Bitcoin DeFi actually works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
2: I mean, you you post these weekly up, monthly updates, quarterly updates to your investors. You're on top of the market. How much do you rebalance your portfolio? To what extent are you willing to make big changes to it, or are you more kind of methodical you're processing information but it it takes you time to kind of reposition the portfolio um i'm curious if if it's if you consider yourself more an investor a trader um, because crypto allows you to do both um i don't know to what extent successfully but yeah
1: uh kind of i would say kind of both yeah i think there's we have done sort of little bits of of liquid venture type of of exposure in the in the hedge fund we're going to be doing more of that we've done some sort of qualitative fundamental based exposure um and are going to be doing more of that and then we've done a lot of systematic models driven uh btc type of exposure and that, and that exposure can move around a, a lot, a lot, mm-hmm. you know, so like that, that can get pretty, pretty whippy. Yeah. Um, you know, especially during periods of, of, of high market volatility.
2: Yeah. And I guess maybe the last question for me is how do you, how do you see the kind of landscape from here on the investing side, capital formation side? Like, um, do you worry about rent tech coming in more sophisticated, like, Folks in TradFi coming in, and um, what does that do to returns? What does that do to your edge? Um, and maybe even perhaps in more general, like what is your edge as an investor?
1: Mm. <laughs> <Ooh>.
0: <laughs> the hard question for the last one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. I think from before we even launched Inky Guy. We launched the fund December of 18. From Before we even launched the fund, we knew we wanted to be really dy- – we knew we were going to need to be very dynamic. And so we wrote the offering documents of the hedge fund to be super broad where we can kind of do whatever we want to with very little exception because it was just like we were big believers in the asset class and in the technology and uh, we're also just big believers that we were going to need to shuffle our feet a lot. And so I think we've been having that as, you know, uh, a, a central part of how we approach the market for that entire period of time. I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm risk averse as a person. I'm risk averse as an investor. And people would think that was crazy. I had like a career in traditional hedge fund investing and then I left 0.72 to go start a crypto hedge fund, which people think of that as being like a very risk seeking behavior. But like I, I, I really like I would never go bungee jumping or skydiving or I don't like to gamble. I've never been to a horse track. I've never bet on a sporting event with a bookie in my life. And like, I don't know, when I looked at crypto, I thought it was the most attractive risk adjusted reward. I'd, in in 2000, summer 2017, I thought it was the most attractive risk adjusted bet I'd ever seen in my life. And that's why I left traditional to come do this. And
2: You mean you, you feel that you feel the safest owning crypto? As as volatile as it is, but it feels safe.
1: Yeah, just just you know, back then I thought it looked incredible and and uh you know it still looks incredible. Um because it's the 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 numbers have gone up a lot, so sort of the expected return has gone down, some you could argue, but the risk has gone down so much. Like in some ways, like the risk adjusted returns like the best it's ever been right now. With like, you know, all these, you know, a lot of this stuff 30, 40, 50-plus percent off the top, depending on where you look at, uh, but the outlook is so apparently obvious about where this is going, but uh, um, not to get sidetracked from, from, from your question, so, so I think we always thought that we could have a, the, the analogy we like to use is like courtside tickets to the basketball game, and we've got courtside tickets to the basketball game being real close to this ecosystem. And we don't know which team's going to win yet. And the team that may end up winning the championship may not have even come around yet, potentially. Um, But we've got front row seats and that we can kind of see the game develop and that we we can kind of, you know, move around accordingly. And I think doing that in the context of being, you know, somewhat, you know, reasonably risk averse and with the understanding that there's going to be tremendous beta value creation of the space. So just being in the space and, you know, avoiding the landmines, avoiding the blowups, avoiding the, the hacks that if you had outside exposure to a hack could be potentially, you know, uh, uh, existential risk to your, to your business, right? If you got, 30% of your fund farming Ronin or something like that, then like potentially that could be existential risk to your business. Right. Uh, and, and so avoiding those types of things and being willing to move your feet along the way as new information becomes available. Uh, you know, I always just thought that that was going to work out well for our investors and work out well for us. I think that that continues to be the case. And, and, um, I think it it was really last summer that it was my, you know, which certainly wasn't particularly early. But it was really last summer that it was like I started to to think about owning the innovation that was happening at at the smart contract layer. And that versus like, you know, the digital gold narrative of Bitcoin and how the market was going to think through assigning value to that. Uh, and, um, I mean, we, we, like I said, we haven't even talked about metaverse or play to earn yet, but we think there's, there's tremendous opportunity there as well too. And yeah. we have been, and we'll continue to be spending a bunch of time there.
2: Maybe, uh, I, I always say it's the last question, but I just have the, the converse of that, which is you've been in the space for a long time. You, you're here, you've survived, you've adapted your thesis. Um, what's been the worst mistake?
1: Hmm. Wow.
2: I've certainly made a ton. <laughs> Jason, probably too.
0: None. No mistakes for me. <laughs> Flawless execution. <laughs> Flawless execution.
1: <laughs> so uh, I, I, the one that comes to mind, I've made so many that it's, you know, it's got how much time we have. The one that, that immediately popped into my head that I think, so, so, so the way we generally, in, in our systematic strategy, the way we generally manage exposure is... It's like models that tell you where your exposure should be, and then a discretionary overlay that sits on top, which is like my discretion, basically. And so a lot of what I do is like read our models, like I trade our models, kind of. And my discretion, the manner and degree to which my discretion has been involved in our investment process has ebbed and flowed over the last few years. There's been periods of time where there's been very little discretion. There's been periods of time where there's been more discretion. Um late last year was a period of time where we had, I would say, more discretion than less. And I think a mistake that I would say was uh in late November when when J pal came out and said it's time to retire the word transitory. Like, I I should have just gotten the fuck out and just like like just sold a ton right then. And uh I, I have, if I think if you line up a hundred crypto fund managers in a row, I think I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I think I understand macro better than like, I don't know, 95 or so of like crypto hedge fund managers. I've just spent a lot of time on it. It's where my career path was before crypto. So it was something that was like right up my alley to understand. And we just didn't get out of the way of it, uh, nearly as much as I would have liked. And it was a combination of like not seeing in the quantitative stuff, not seeing like because if you look at the chart, Bitcoin went down 50 percent in a straight line after after that. And uh, we didn't see the stuff in in all the quant stuff we look at. We didn't really see like a down 50 percent of straight move in a straight line that kind of move on the table. Uh, And I kind of saw you know, some, you know, I thought maybe we could have a decent January with a bunch of new inflows type of stuff happening. And I just, uh, we didn't take nearly as much of our exposure down as I, as I would have liked. And the fact that it happened from like a macro centric move, I just would have thought that we could have played that a little better. So that was the first thing that came to mind, but it's like, you know, oh, certainly nice. didn't blow the fund. You know, we're in a totally fine spot. So it's like, yeah, we didn't win that one, but like we're in a completely fine spot at the same time too. And so it's like, you know, you always want to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, you're certainly around to, to keep playing the game. So,
2: you know, you could have said like, Oh shit, I could have done this. I could have done that. And in crypto, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things you're going to, I shouldn't have sold that shit coin that Solana at one point was a shit coin and then a boom. Like, I feel like if you, if you recriminate yourself too much, you can just like paralyze yourself. Like do you think about these things a lot, or do you kind of say, "Okay, you know, you know what? We're going to learn from this. Time to move on."
1: Yeah, it's much more so the latter. It has to be the latter. Uh, public Enemy, uh, the rap group, "Don't let a win get to your head or a loss to your heart," is a really, really good one. Um, but, but I, I think uh, you know, if you're running an investment process at a fund, then you have to be able to like let it go but then at the same, when you're, when you're, when you're existing in this shuffle your feet world, like I just talked about, you also have to be like, okay, is there something that we need to shift about our investment process? You look back and you go, okay, what happened there? Good or bad. And then like, is there, do we need to do more of this? Do we need to do less of that? Are we being, and it's part of what makes this so challenging because you have to be responsive without chasing, but like, sometimes you sort of like want to chase because if you, if you realize that you should shift, if you, if you shuffle your feet at the beginning of like some secular shift that's happening in crypto, then that, that, that feet shuffle, that chase, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm going to like chase NFTs in August of 2021. Well, if you've been chasing NFTs since August, 2021, I think that's probably worked out really well for you. Right. Like, uh, And so it's, that's part of what makes, makes this challenging. And, the yeah, so it's, it's like existing in this dynamic landscape where, you know, you, you need to evolve your investment process while, you know, simultaneously, you know, yeah, you cannot, you can't, you know, all, if you let it eat you up, it'll, you'll go crazy. Yeah.
0: Trav man. Awesome podcast. Awesome conversation.
2: We thought this was going to be a weekly update. This turned out to be a philosophical discussion and more about Ikigai.
0: <laughs> yeah, we had this book for our, <laughs> our weekly roundup. And uh, man,
2: you know, for better or for worse, continue to be front and center in, in, in all of what we, you know, think about affects crypto. To think that it doesn't is delusional. Yeah. So let's get you on, you know, as, as many times as you want. We can talk about macro all day long. And I can't because I'm not an expert on it, but you certainly you certainly know your stuff. So we'd love to have you on in the pod again. And, and it's been a good, true delight, I think. For anyone that wants to get access to your letters, do you publish those or where can people get a peek into your brain and more of what you have to offer?
1: Yeah. Twitter's always good. Travis underscore cling. And, uh, the, you can sign up for the monthly update letters we have a content depot called Kana and katana.com, which is the pen and the sword in Japanese. Uh, so that's where we, you can look, you can sign up for the monthly update letters. You can see all the historical, monthly adbay letters there. So um, yeah, that's a a good spot for that stuff. Appreciate the time, guys. I enjoy the conversation.
0: I'll get the link. I'll get the link. Awesome, man. Trav, be well. Always a pleasure. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care,
2: my friend. Take care.